point? What's the mission? What's the end goal? What are we all about? I think that's a really important question, isn't it? Like, why do we do what we do as a church? And uh, you may sit there and go, well, okay, I got some good answers for you, Ken. One of them would be that we're here to worship, and we just did it, and it's great to adore and magnify and extol and exalt our God. And the fact we did today, that's one of the reasons that grace exists. And I would say, you're absolutely right. You might say to me, well, okay, I think there's another reason. Um, I think we exist to care for one another, to, to fellowship with one another, not just to care for people who are inside the, the walls, as it were, of grace, but for people who are outside the walls. We want to we care for people. And, and uh, Einer talked a little bit about that this morning in our giving back moment, about how we're doing some of that stuff. And that's another reason why we exist, worship, caring for others. I think teaching, Ken, teaching's kind of important, right? We want to learn about God. We want to take the Bible understand the Bible, embrace the Bible's teaching, become fully devoted followers of Jesus. And all of those things are absolutely true. That is why we exist. But there's one more thing that I want to talk about today that's another reason why we exist. And if I wanted to express it, there's a big word starts with an E that we could use to talk about this. But, I, but one way of sort of describing it is this way. One of the things that grace does is it seeks to help people find and follow Jesus. Now, the big word would be the word, what word? Evangelism, right? Which gets everybody shaky all of a sudden when I say that word. Evangelism is really a piece and part of what we're supposed to do as a church. Help people find and follow Jesus. Share the good news of Jesus with other people, right? Does that make sense? Now, someone once said that when you think about a church, if you can imagine the church has four tires, four wheels on it, and one wheel would be worship, and one wheel would be caring, and one wheel would be teaching, and one wheel would be evangelism, that one of the things we have to do as a church is that one of the tires tends to leak really easily, really quickly, and guess which tire that is? It's the evangelism one, that we have to keep kind of pumping that one up, we have to keep kind of expressing that one, pushing that one, thinking about that one, pushing ourselves out of our um, comfort zone, as it were, right? So... When we talk about evangelism, I'm doing, I'm doing the wrong thing here. Sorry about that. Uh, this isn't working either. Okay. There we go. Why? We're back to why, right? Did I get it right? Okay. Why can't I get it right? That's a, okay. So the question then becomes, well, how? Okay. I'm getting it now. How do we, how do we do this thing called evangelism? Because it's it's, you know, what do we do? How do we make it work? That's kind of an important question, isn't it? How do we make it work? Because the thing is, I can't make somebody believe. I can't make somebody believe in Jesus. A believing in something is a personal decision that I make. It's an act of my own will. So I can't come up to somebody and say, hey, you're going to believe in Jesus. I'm going to make you do that. It just doesn't work that way. And we can't make people follow Jesus. We can't make them decide that they're going to turn their lives over to him. I can't make someone do that. It just, it just doesn't work that way, right? Because following Jesus, again, is an act of my own will. It's a decision that I make to believe in him, and it's a decision that I make to follow him. Because the truth of the matter is that Christianity isn't a bunch of rules and rituals and regulations and so on and so forth. It's, it, it's not that way. So I can't say, do all this, 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 and this, and it will make you what you need to be. It's not that way. It's about a relationship, isn't it? So what do we do? What do we do? I'm I'm glad you asked, okay? So here's what we need to do when we're thinking about this. There is a beautiful thing, a simple thing, a powerful thing that we get to do as followers of Jesus in this whole realm of evangelism. And it may feel small 
and weak and insignificant, but it's not. And it's been our practice for millennium. And that thing is invite. And I want you to say the word with me. Can you do that, please? Invite. When you think of evangelism, one of the things that I want you to think about is this idea called invite. God the Father invites, God the Holy Spirit invites, God the Son invites, and God's Jesus' followers have been inviting for millennium. That's one of the ways of thinking about evangelism, is thinking about this simple little word called invite. Now, the truth of the matter is we all love invitations, don't we? Don't we love invitations? You get invited to be a friend of someone. You get invited to start a job. You get invited to a school. You get invited maybe into some kind of a relationship with someone that lasts a long time. Those things, we really like invitations. I remember when our kids were really, really small, then they would get invited to a birthday party. You guys remember that when you were little or you know somebody who's little and you remember the invitation of the birthday party, they would be so excited about the invitation. I get to go to a birthday party and they were all fired up about that, right? And I remember our girls were running around trying to think, what can I get them? What can I get them? What can I get them? And the boys were thinking, what about the cake and the ice cream? What about the cake and the ice cream? And, but they were all still really fired up about this thing called an invitation, right? And that same thing is true with us as adults, right? When you get invited to someone's home, when you get invited out to watch a movie with some friends, when you get invited into a friendship, when you get invited to a wedding, don't you think, I got invited to the wedding, that's special. And then you remember you have to buy a gift and you don't feel so warm anymore, right? And that's because we're basically cheap. (laughs) But it's not only true that we like invites, but it's also true that invites have really, really shaped us. The invitation into whatever context you went into had a way of shaping who you are. If you could track back, you might even discover that you are who you are in large part because of invitations that you responded to, contexts that you lived in, experiences that you had. Many of us are followers of Jesus today because someone invited us to come to church. You're saying, no, my parents made me come. Okay, but at some point along the line, right, you made a decision because you knew that God was inviting you into a relationship with him through his son, the Lord Jesus, and you suddenly went, I, I think this is a good invitation. I'm going to check this invitation out. In fact, I would argue that at its most basic state, evangelism is an invitation. Now think about that. It kind of changes our paradigm about it, maybe dials back some of the fear, right? The idea that evangelism is simply, I'm inviting someone to meet the most amazing man that I know, the most amazing leader that I know. I'm inviting you to get to know him, to to hang out with him, to learn about him. Jesus was a big inviter. If you you look in the Gospels, if you look at his, his life, he was inviting all the time. And it didn't matter who the people were, children. He welcomed them. He invited them to come close to him. Women who were often on the fringes of society and downcast became central to what his mission was about. He invited lepers and the ill and the paralyzed and the outcast. He invited Pharisees and Roman soldiers. He invited everybody. Jesus was a big inviter. And what he is telling and calling on you and me to do and to be is also big inviters to think about that whole concept of inviting. A mark of a follower of Jesus is they are inviters. And Jesus does this, and what I want to do is I want to look at a section of Scripture where there's a whole lot of inviting going on, okay? 
And it's kind of cool because Kathy quoted from the beginning of John chapter 1, and I'm going to sneak into chapter 1 again with me if you'll do that, if you've got a, pho a phone or whatever. John chapter 1. What you're going to see in John chapter 1 is there's a whole lot of inviting going on. Okay, so let me give you the context. John chapter 1, we're going to go to verse, as you see, 35. And uh, let me give you the context here. So, Jesus has shown up. He's been sort of hidden from out view for the first 30 years of his life, right? And we're all going, I wonder what happened then. But we don't know, right? Just a little snip, snapshot here and there. He comes to the Jordan River, and John the baptizer, John the Baptist is there. And John the Baptist, remember there's a conversation in the middle of the river? And Jesus says, you need to baptize me. And John goes, no, I, you need to baptize me. And they're kind of having this little debate. And finally, John decides, okay, I'll do what you say, Jesus. Jesus gets baptized, comes out of the water. There's a voice from heaven that says, this is my son, the one I love and who I'm well pleased. And Jesus takes off and goes into the wilderness. He's led by the Holy Spirit for 40 days. He doesn't eat anything. And the tempter comes to him. And Jesus defeats the temptation, right? He's victorious over that. He comes back to the Jordan River where John the Baptist is hanging out with another crowd of people. He shows up there. This is the context of John chapter 1, starting at verse 35. Here's what we read. The next day, John was there again. Now, John, this is John the Baptist, okay? John the Baptizer. Big guy, you know, leather locusts, all that sort of stuff you've heard about. So John the Baptist is there. This, the next day, John the Baptist there was there again with two of his disciples. I'll give you a sneak peek here. The two are John, the author of the book of John, and Andrew, okay? You'll find out later that I'm, I'm right, okay? Just, just hang in there. Doesn't tell us right now, but these are these two guys who are followers of Jesus, right? And by the way, John it, John is unique. If you read scripture, you read the gospel of John, he rarely identifies himself, and, and that's just part of his nature. Um, and, um, but anyway, he's one of the guys, and then also, as I mentioned, Andrew. Next day, John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples, and when he saw Jesus passing by, so Jesus has come back from the temptation now, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Look, the Lamb of God. Now, this is a phrase that you can only find in John's writings, the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. That's the only place where the title, the Lamb of God, exists. It's interesting that John does this because John the Baptist's favorite title for Jesus is the Lamb of God, and then he packs on, you'll see a little bit little earlier in chapter 1, who takes away the sin of the world. He often says that about him. John's emphasis seems to be on that when he comes to Jesus. Go back to verse 35. The next day, John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples, John and Andrew. And when he saw Jesus pass by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So here's invitation number one in the account. John the Baptist is inviting two of his disciples to follow Jesus. Okay, next verse. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Here's invitation number two. Jesus says, come, he replied, and you will see. Come and see, invitation number two. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. So John and Andrew have gone to be with Jesus. Come and see, he says. That was invitation number two. Andrew, who happens to be Simon Peter's brother, 
was one of the two who heard what John had said, that John the Baptist had said, and who had followed Jesus. The first thing that Andrew did after he spent this time come and see, Jesus said, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. That's invitation number three. Andrew goes and finds his brother Peter. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. Simon Johnson, right? No, not really. Okay. <laughs> you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter or what? What's the other word we know? Petra, rock, right? Rock. I wonder if the other disciples, maybe Andrew, who's Peter's brother, is thinking, Rocky? You're going to call him Rocky? Like he's up and down like a toilet seat emotionally, man. He sticks his foot in his mouth all the time. Why don't you call him Pebbles? <laughs> or Sandy, okay? But not Rocky. I mean, that can't possibly be a good title for him, okay? The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Now we have the invitation number four, right? John the Baptist for John and Andrew. Then Jesus come and see. Then Andrew going and finding Peter. And now Jesus finding Philip. Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael, okay, and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there, Nathaniel asked? <laughs> it's kind of cool, eh? You kind of start off down or on a downer here. Come and see, Philip said, invitation number five. Come and see, said Philip. And when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Big conversion all of a sudden. <laughs> I mean, just because of that one thing. Uh, Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? Like, really? I will show you greater things than that. Invitation number five. So there's a whole lot of inviting going on, right? A whole lot of inviting going on. And here's what's really fascinating to me, that when you start to look at the invitations... And you start to look at the response to the invitations. You find different pictures of Jesus, different images of who he is. And what I find really fascinating to me is the scope of the pictures that are found in this passage of who Jesus is. And they are vast and broad, and they speak to a whole lot of needs and a whole lot of issues in people's lives. In fact, what we're going to do now is go back at each invitation and look at what, how Jesus was described or how the response was to him and understand that when you and I are inviting someone to meet Jesus, we're inviting them to experience someone who is vast and amazing and can meet all kinds of needs in their lives. That's clearly what's happening in the passage. So let's look at the first one. The first one is this. John says to his disciples, look, the Lamb of God. As I mentioned already, this is the only, the only place you can find this title is in the Gospel of John and in the book of Revelation, both books of which John, the disciple John, wrote. 
And as I mentioned already before as well, John the Baptist would also, would call, this was his most common title. It's probably why John, his disciple, had put that in the gospel and in the book of Revelation. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you're going to compare me to an animal, I'd love you to compare me to like a, a horse or an eagle or a lion. But a lamb? Really? Would you want to be compared to a lamb? It just seems like a bad example to be picked on. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. But Jesus is called the lamb, right? And when we understand what's going on in the Old Testament context, of course, we recognize that there's a sacrificial system that has been happening. Some of you are getting past that. That's been happening over and over again for quite some time. And, and, and the sacrificial system says this, when we sin, there needs to be a sacrifice for that sin. It needs to be an animal sacrifice. And lambs were sacrificed at Passover, also on the daily, daily uh, time that they were sacrificed as well. And... Um, this idea of him being the lamb, and as John the Baptist says, who takes away the sin of the world, really points to the fact that when John saw Jesus, he said, this is the lamb. So in the Old Testament, when sacrifices were made, your sin was covered. It was like you were on bail, okay? But now we get it all taken care of because the lamb who comes and gives his life for us takes care of all our sin. So what John is telling the disciples here, Andrew and and the other John, he's telling them, look, this is the one from whom you can find total and absolute forgiveness. Think about what you have done. Think about the sin in your life. Think about the regrets that you have. Think about the shame that you have. Think about the hidden things that you have in your life. When we are inviting people to meet Jesus, we're inviting them to meet the sin forgiver. The one who can completely wipe their slate clean between themselves and God. He is the only one who can do that. And no matter what weight of sin you may have, and you can see this in the life of Jesus throughout the Gospels, he is the sin forgiver, absolute forgiveness. So John is telling the two disciples, go to the man who can forgive all our sin. Go to the one who can did do that. And sometimes when we're speaking to people who are, are friends of ours or co-workers or neighbors or family, when we are inviting them to meet Jesus, we're really saying to them, there is someone who can take care of all your sin who can wipe the slate clean between you and God, and he's the only way that this can happen. It's not through rites or rituals or regulations or religion. It's through meeting this man who is our ultimate sin forgiver. The second invitation is the invitation that Andrew gives to Peter. Rabbi, he calls him, which means teacher. Now here's my question to you. Um, Who's the smartest person on the planet? Who's ever lived? Albert Einstein? Stephen Hawking? No, the answer is Jesus, right? Isn't he the smartest person that's ever lived? And you're going, well, we're in church, Ken. We're supposed to say Jesus, right? It's like the kid in, in Sunday school, and the teacher says, what's uh, got a long furry tail, climbs trees, and eats nuts? And the kid said, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but I bet the answer is Jesus, right? Because we tend to always say that, right? So when I say the smartest person in the world is Jesus, do you really believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the most intelligent, has life really ordered in his mind over anybody else who's ever lived on the planet? Because if you do believe that, then you recognize that when Jesus teaches us about God, about ourselves, and about life in terms, he's telling us the truth. He is the source 
of truth around this understanding of who we are. Jesus, there is no one greater, wiser, healthier, more beautiful, more fulfilling. There's no better way to live than to live out our lives in this broken world according to the way Jesus would call us to live, to pursue humility, to forgive one another, to all of those things, those elements that Jesus tells us are the way that we should live out our lives. That's how we should live. So when I'm inviting someone to meet Jesus, I'm inviting someone to meet the greatest teacher there is, the one who can tell them how to live their lives in accordance with the, their DNA, the way that God created them. You can know this teacher, embrace this teacher, understand his ways. They aren't always easy, but if you will embrace and follow them, you will discover a way of life that Jesus describes as being full and rich and overflowing, bubbling over inside of you if you follow his ways, if you love him the way that you need to. So when we're inviting people to follow Jesus, we're saying to them, I'm inviting you to meet the one who can forgive your sin. Make it right between you and God. Take care of it all. I'm inviting you to meet the one who's the best and greatest teacher who's ever lived, who can teach you how to live life the way that you were created to live life. There's another way, introduction as well. We have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. Now, the word Messiah means anointed one, and it is especially focused on the one who was to come, who is going to be this hero, the promised one, the expected one. And in fact, what he, basically what's being stated here, we found the Messiah, means that Jesus is the ultimate deliverer, the hero who's going to rescue us. In that particular context, they would be thinking of Rome. And the Messiah comes, will break the back of Rome, and we'll be a nation on our own again. But ultimately, what Jesus is going to do when he comes, he's going to deliver us from all of the darkness, the brokenness that is around us. He's going to make things right. He's going to take away the pain. He's going to flip the world right side up. This is what the Messiah is going to do. And the invitation to our friends, our family, to meet Jesus is not just for forgiveness of sins and not just to know the greatest teacher, but to find the one who's going to deliver everything. He's going to make it all right. He is our superhero. He is the one who's going to pull it all off. And all the hopes that we have, as good as we are doing with government and education and science and so on and philosophy and so on and so on, the bottom line answer is that we need a man whose name is Jesus, who is the Messiah, who alone can come and make it right. And if you're looking at the news on the, on, uh, you know, today and you're seeing all the chaos that's around you, you need to realize there is someone who can make it right, and his name is Jesus, and he's going to come and make it right. And we can put our faith and hope in him, even in the midst of a world that seems to be going nutty in every way, shape, and form. Third, you'll notice this one. We have found the one Moses spoke about in the law. And when he says in the law, he's talking about the first five books of the Bible, commonly called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, sometimes called the Torah. And what's interesting here is that he's saying, the one Moses wrote about. And you have to understand that for the Jewish context, Moses was like the hero, okay? The big guy. Like, we've got his writings. We call them the Torah. We obey them. We follow him. For him to be writing about someone that he was looking forward to means that that someone is greater than Moses. And what is being stated here, we have found the one Moses spoke about is to say that we have found the one who is greater than Moses. He's the prophesied one. Moses is looking to Jesus. Now, Nathaniel has doubts about this, 
but he soon changes his mind. And what we're really talking about is the one who has been promised to come all the way back in history. He's the one who's going to fulfill all those promises, all the hopes that you have. He's the one, the hopes that you may have inside of you. This one, Jesus, is going to fulfill those. So I'm saying to my friends and my family and my relatives, my coworkers, my neighbors, hey, look, I want you to meet someone, and I may not say all this to them, but in my heart I'm thinking, he can forgive your sins. He can teach you how to live in a great way. He's the one who's going to turn the world right, and he's the one who's been promised. He's going to fulfill all the promises that God has spoken of in Scripture. And then there's one more. In response to Jesus revealing that he saw Nathaniel under the tree, he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. You're the king of Israel. And it's a radical thing that he's saying right here at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, isn't it? That you are the son of God, which means you are God. You're equal with God in every way, shape, or form. Now, it happens really quickly to Nathaniel, and I'm sure he has doubts as time goes by. But right now he's saying that's who you are. You're God. You're the creator. You're the sovereign one. You are the king of kings, the king of Israel. You are everything. And when I'm inviting my friends to meet Jesus, I'm inviting them to meet the one who is their sin forgiver, who is their teacher, who is the one who's going to turn the world right side up, who's the one who's going to fulfill all of the promises that are in our hearts too, the promises I want to see made right. And he's God in the flesh. That's who he is. Inviting people to meet Jesus is inviting them to meet someone who deeply loves them and who can meet their deepest needs and their deepest longings. Did you really believe that? Or have we gotten so used to it, those of us who are followers of Jesus, that we've forgotten that Jesus talks about people being lost or blind or distant from him, and Jesus is the one who can make that all right? Every single one of us has the power to change the trajectory of someone's life through a single or a series of of invitations. So Grace Community Church started in 1975, and I've heard some interesting stories about what's going on back in those early days, all of which I can't share this morning because of time. Um, I wish we had movies that we could show, don't you? It'd be some funny, funny things to see and some exciting things to see. But the reason that it started was so that they could help people find one of the reasons to find and follow Jesus, right? I mean, that was what it was all about. And invitations, invitations, invitations. Come and follow Jesus. Come and meet the one who is so great, so amazing, so incredible. And that's what we want to do too, right? Now, one of the things about evangelism that I think is so cool is that it's not just necessarily a solo sport. Did you know that? That it actually is a team. It can be a team sport. And if you think about it that way, it is just so cool that we can work together to help people, to invite people to meet this man who is absolutely the answer to everything. And you're saying to me, well, Ken, how do we, how do, we do that? How do we get people to see and meet Jesus and understand how wonderful he is and discover all those things we just looked at by those invitations that were given in chapter one of John's gospel? Well, I believe one of the things that we do is we try as a church to create a place where people can come in and they can feel welcomed. And I think you're really good at that. And they can, no matter where they are on their spiritual journey, no matter how far they may be away from God, no matter what they're struggling with, they can come in here and we're ready for them. We're saying we're glad you're here. And we want you to kind of belong maybe a little bit before you believe. 
to hang out with us, to connect with us. Feel free to, to do some things at the church, even if you're not a follower yet. And watch and maybe participate at some level in, in singing the songs that we're doing and listen to the teaching and be in a group of people or maybe serve in some context around the church so that we can, as a result of that, have, help you take those steps, help you become a follower of Jesus. That's the kind of church that we want. And so as a church, not only do we do, want, want them to do that, but we're going to do some special things so that you can actually, maybe what we're going to call high-invite events or high-invite services where you can invite people knowing we're really super prepared for them to come. And this is actually a service for them. And we're going to be here, and we're going to be what we need to be so that they can, in turn, draw closer to Jesus. One of those services is Christmas Eve. And that Christmas Eve is designed for us to celebrate the birth of Jesus, but also to bring as many people as we can. And it's filling up pretty quickly, so I hope you're, you've gotten yourself online and, and registered in a hurry on that one. Now, inviting is really critical to our mission as a church. To help people find and follow Jesus, we've got to invite. There's just, they don't normally pull up and go, hey, I'm here. Although that does happen, and thank God it does. But we struggle a little bit with inviting others, right? Here's a couple of reasons why. One of them is that we, we're feared they're going to say no. And I don't know about you, but I don't like rejection. So when I invite somebody and they say no, I go, well, oh, okay. And I don't, I don't like to hear no. So it pulls me back. It slows me down. I don't like it. I don't like to be rejected. But that's the nature of an invitation. An invitation is an opportunity to say, I'm going to the wedding. I'm not going to the wedding. Okay? I'm going to the birthday party. I'm not going to the birthday party. I'm going to the, the church. Okay. I'm not going to church. That's, that's part of what it is. So they say no. That's just part of the process. Some people suggest that it takes seven times to invite a person before they say yes. And maybe this is just number one or number four or number six. Wouldn't that be cool? Here's another thing that maybe stops us from inviting. What if they say yes, and they come? Okay, now what's going to happen, right? I mean, um, what if they come, and, the, and, on, and, and on that Sunday, the sermon is a dud, and, um, and, and the music's not that great, and the text's all wonky, and the greeters aren't greeting, and, and you know, all those kinds of things happen. And I work really hard. What if that happens? <laughs> um, when I have had some of my neighbors come to church, un unchurched neighbors come to church, my spidey sense is like way up here. Do you know what I'm saying? I want the greeters to greet, but not be too greedy. You know what I'm saying? I want the ushers to ush, but not be too ushy. I don't want, I want to make sure that the, the speaker's really good. I don't want to dud, and I don't want the worship to be really good, and I'm really kind of on edge. It's most uncomfortable services I sit in is when I've got my neighbors across the street sitting in the ch church with me. But you know what I believe? I believe that God does stuff beyond what we do to touch that person's heart. Man, he better because we're not good enough on our own, right? It's all a God thing, and we want to trust him for that. One of the reasons we struggle is someone might say no, someone might say yes. We fear it might change the relationship, okay? That if we invite them, they're going to go, okay, this person's after me, and we feel the relationship might change. And I wonder if that's a statement more about how we think of the maturity of the person we're inviting versus how mature they really, really are, right? We fear maybe we put them in an awkward spot and we don't want to do that. Or maybe we just don't care enough. Maybe we've downplayed this one who's been, we've seen so clearly in John chapter, downplayed who he is and what he can do and all that he is and can be in our lives. Maybe we've forgotten what he's done and the change that's happened to us, the change that's happening to us. Maybe somehow we've forgotten that. Well, we want to help you, help us invite so on your way in, on your way out, you got a little card. This might be something you might want to give to someone. That's one way of inviting them. 
Another way is to go on our website. There's an evite. You just fill out the evite, send it that way to someone. That's a way to invite. Maybe you can text them. Maybe you could talk to them face to face. Maybe you can use this thing called a phone. There's a whole bunch of other things that you could invite someone. And particularly, as I mentioned already, we're thinking about the Christmas Eve ser service as a place to really begin to do that. So there's lots of ways of inviting people. And maybe you could just say, hey, we've got a Christmas Eve event happening on the 23rd and 24th, and it'd be really cool if you came, if you want to celebrate Christmas with us that way. It's really kind of interesting, isn't it, to see what's going on in our culture still? You've been in the mall lately? It's crazy to listen to the music, the Christmas music, and some of those carols, the message inside of them is astounding that our culture is still listening to them, maybe even humming them, but perhaps not paying attention. And maybe we need to pray. Pray for our own hearts, that we would become inviters. Pray for the hearts of the people that we're going to invite. Pray for opportunities. I think praying for opportunities is really a cool thing to do, to sort of begin the day by saying, God, if there's a way that you can use me today to invite someone, help me to be sensitive, open the doors for that. There's a whole lot of inviting going on in chapter one. There's a whole lot of inviting, I'm sure, going on in our life of our church. Let's give people a chance to meet Jesus through us here at Creekside. Let, let's pray together. Can we do that? Heavenly Father, we thank you today for this time that we're together, for the opportunity that we have to remember and, and be challenged to invite others. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd speak to our own hearts, to the hearts of those whom we see now perhaps as an image on our minds, and Lord, we've asked for opportunities that you might allow that to take place. Thank you for Jesus. As we come into this season, as we remember who he is and all that he did, we think the vastness again this morning of all that he meant. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you be glorified in all parts. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So, when we invite people, one of the things that we're inviting them to ultimately do is to come to the table to come to the table, the Lord's table, to gather around that table and remember him. We're inviting people to discover that there is a God who loves them so much that he wants to be close to them, that he came to be with us. And this is a truth that we need to remember to celebrate. And Jesus instituted something that was very important. He invited us to come to the table, didn't he? And this morning on your way in, you received a uh, little cup like this. If you haven't got one and you need one, would you just raise your hands? And the ushers will make sure that you get one. And it contains a, um, if you open the top, it contains a piece of bread. And on the bottom is some juice to remember the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Communion is a time that we've been invited to by Jesus to remember his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his return. It's a time for us to celebrate what he did for us and a time to anticipate what he's going to do when he comes back. It's a great opportunity, and you and I have been invited to experience that together with him. So millions of Christians around the world are, are doing the same sort of thing with us today because God has invited all, no matter who you are, to experience that. Paul, when he writes in 1 Corinthians 11, in verse 23, he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant or new agreement in my blood. That's a pretty tight agreement, right? 
So do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this morning, let's take a minute and just quiet your hearts and reflect and remember and celebrate the wonderful thing that Jesus did, that you responded to the invitation if you're a follower of his. And as a result of that, you are at the table right now with all your brothers and sisters. Take a moment, and then I will lead us in taking the bread together. remember the body of Christ given for us. And let's remember the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, our teacher, our Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God. Let's remember his life poured out for us in his blood. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that in this very tactile way, we can remember very deliberately the death, burial, resurrection, and return of Jesus, and pray that even as we do that together this morning, that you would um, draw that imagery very close to us, that we'll be reminded of who we are in Christ, how that invitation to us is an invitation that's given us life forever with Christ. Amen.
to uh, invite everybody after the service to uh, go over and grab a coffee and hang out for a while and 
and uh, get caught up with uh, somebody this morning. But I, I just want to let you know as well that in the sanctuary here, the Grace Kids will be doing a Christmas choir practice. So if you'd like to have a conversation with somebody, I would invite you to uh, just leave the sanctuary and do that outside. If you're interested in listening to the practice, uh, you're willing to stay, but we just need it a bit quieter in here this morning. Um, and now, I'm, oh yes, I, <laughs> I missed the most important announcement of all. If your kid is involved with the choir practice, please make sure you come at 1045 to pick them up. Yeah. And finally, um, I'd like to close with a prayer. God, let us be people of hope. Let hope live in our hearts and lead us to share the hope of Christ with all we meet in this season of Advent. And fill our hearts with the wonder of God's love and goodness as Christmas approaches. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning.